That's it. You ready, Eddie? I'm gonna blow this horn. Okay. Okay. I think. <laughs> hey, it worked. Almost everybody's in here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a mistake to sit down. Thanksgiving Day, but we just want you, you to know that we are thankful to you every day. We are so thankful that you you loved us enough to, to do what you did in your plan of salvation and that even before we were created, you knew all about it. All the, all the, to me, it, it seemed like an awful lot of trouble you went to, but uh, we just want to thank you because without you and and just being with us all the days of our lives and drawing us to you uh, Lord we would be lost and it would be awful we praise you we thank you for your mercy we thank you for being who you are and for loving us and we we praise you back and uh, love you back and and just just want to be very pleasing to you in everything we do in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Lord. <clears throat> All right. So, the title of this message is Contentment's Great Gain. Okay. We're going to read Hebrews thirteen, verses five and six. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, the message in two points. <laughs> okay. It's a two-slide teaching. Except I'll go past that. <laughs> All right. The first point is, that true contentment is possible because God is always with us. That's what makes true contentment possible, because God is always with us. Second point is that contentment's great gain is a relationship with Christ. The Lord is my helper. That anchors our faith. I will not fear. And frees us from intimidation. What can man do to me? So we can boldly testify of His grace. We can confidently say. That's a lot in one verse. What was the name of the teaching again? Contentment's great gain. So contentment's great gain is a relationship with Christ that anchors our faith and frees us from intimidation so that we can boldly testify of His grace. Amen? If we get anything else, there it is. <laughs> front-loaded the point of what we'll go over tonight. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I want to take some time just to review this promise from God to us so we can really anchor ourselves on that. Genesis 28:15. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. This was God's conversation with Jacob at Bethel. But it applies to us. This is because God doesn't change. So His character is, I won't leave you until I've completed what I've promised you. I will hang with you until I have accomplished my purpose that I promised to you. So here's the question. What does He promise to us? Eternal life with Him. Eternal life. John, 1 John 2.25 And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. So, when will He leave us? Never. 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 <laughs> you see, you see you, how punctilious our God is? Yes. 
He will never leave us or forsake us. Why? Because by his own nature and character, he must oversee his own purpose. He will not have his purpose not accomplished. What he states will happen. Praise the Lord. And it's active. The, the, the whole deistic thought of God setting a clockwork universe in motion, just letting it run on its own, isn't true to the character of God. God is actively involved in seeing His promises fulfilled. Okay? And that's exciting. He has promised, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So He's never going to leave us, because His promise to us is eternal life, and He doesn't leave until His end is accomplished. So, He will continue it going. Isn't that nice? <laughs> so He's never going to leave us. Never. This means, here's the takeaway, this means that any feelings of abandonment, justified and real as they may be, are never the ultimate truth or reality. So, two great abandonments in life, I could put up three, but actually, you know, I would put it in this order. Death, divorce, and betrayal. Any one of those... <laughs> can leave you feeling abandoned. But that abandonment isn't the ultimate reality because God never leaves you. So even at our most isolated and loneliest, we can reach out to the promise and the certainty that God is with us. Therefore, we're not abandoned, ever. Never alone. Isn't that good? Yes. We are never alone or totally abandoned. Amen? What this also tells us is that the true need of mankind isn't things. Keep your life free from the love of money. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. See, man's true need isn't things, but companionship. And God made this made us aware of this early, early on. After giving Adam the entire world, <laughs> he said, it's not good for man to be alone. You've got to get that boy some help. <laughs> You've got to get that boy some help. you got that right. <laughs> it's not good for man to be alone. So, contentment does not reside in how much you make, where you live, what clothes you buy, what truck you have. None of it. The real need of mankind is companionship. And the only companionship that will never let you down is Lord God Almighty through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the continual abiding of the Holy Spirit within you. Amen? Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you he will not leave you or forsake you. That we're not alone in life's challenges should give us courage. Having to face something alone could be daunting. But here's another reality. We never face anything alone. Right? So, Joshua chapter 1 verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So look at the fruit or the outcome of being courageous in the company of God. When we're courageous in the company of God, what that does is it helps others receive God's promises. Our boldness in Christ and our boldness in our relationship with Christ helps others receive the promises of God. Helps others receive their due inheritance. That's powerful. That means not only are we never alone, His being with us always impacts others. I get excited. <laughs> 
1 Samuel 12, verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you His people. So how serious God takes this, not leaving you on your lonesome. He staked His entire reputation on His care for us. He does it for His name's sake. It's His reputation on the line. 1 Chronicles 28, 20. Then David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work of the service of the house of the Lord is finished. He will not leave you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Though the Lord is always with us, His presence is particularly manifested when we are about the Father's business mm -hmm. of building, that's edifying, His people, the temple of the living God. So you see how synergistic this is with God. That even at our most aloneness, we're not alone. And when we are strong and courageous in the Lord's company, it increases the company we are with. And we are with that greater company of the called out, God's more present still. For wherever there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Right? Well, if you're by yourself, is He there with you? Yes. But there's something about the two and three that puts Him right in the middle of you. <laughs> That His manifest presence becomes more palpable, particularly when we're about building the house of God. Psalm 37, verse 25, is one of Eddie's favorites. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or His children begging bread. So, we can't be passive in this. Contentment isn't passivity. Contentment is faith in action, trust in the promise of God that He means what He says, that He's with us, that He'll take care of us, that He'll provide for us. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Aren't these good? Mm -hmm. These are just awesome promises. Amen. Uh, 41 verse 17. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights, and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. So... Come to me, you who are thirsty, and drink of the water of life. Amen? True contentment is possible because God is always with us. God is always with us. <clears throat> Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. This love of money is the Greek word, aphilarguros, aphilarguros, unavariciousness. Avaricious. Greedy. Right? Unavariciousness. So, sorry for the small print, I wound up loading a fifth point on this slide, and I should have broken it up. But, this breaks down, this word breaks down like this, okay? The article A is the Greek prefix for the negative. A is not. Okay? Philos is loving. You know, Philadelphia. <laughs> right? The city of brotherly love. Philos, that's loving. So, not loving. And the third part of that word is argudos, silver. I mean, that's a pretty practical, straightforward word. Let your manner... Not, not be loving silver. 
You know, we're not talking about the chalice or the cup. We're, you know, we're talking about a means of exchange, money. Not loving the, the shiny stuff. Right. The shiny thing. The shiny thing. Shiny. <laughs> I prefer gold anyway. Huh? I said I prefer gold. You prefer gold anyway, right? Anyway, this is why this word is 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 translated love of money because that's basically how it works down. Not loving silver. <clears throat> it's translated without covetousness in the King James Version. Thou shalt not covet. Um, covet is simply to desire. Covet is simply to desire what belongs to somebody else, right? With warm affection, wanting what isn't yours. 1 Timothy 3.3 is the only other use, it's translated not covetous, and it's tied there to gross greediness. Not, not, you know, not working for filthy lucre's sake is the King James Version. Um, and filthy lucre sounds, that is really, King James has a way of uh, saying things that makes him really feel, ugh. <laughs> Who wants to be around that, you know? Um, but that's, you know, gross greediness. This is one of the qualifications for bishops, you know, not covetousness. Um, Philargos is, is used in Luke 16, 14, describing the Pharisees, who were covetous. This is a, a form of the word. And 2 Timothy 3, 2 is a sign of the last days. For men shall be lovers of themselves, covetous. And then it goes on to this whole, whole other list. You know, but it's not front-loaded with murder and abusers of mankind. It's, it starts with selfish greed. <laughs> in the end days... <laughs> Men will have selfish greed. Hmm. I wonder. Hey, I could peg that century down to the yesterday and two millennia ago. Another form of the word philaguria is used in First Timothy six ten, which from the King James we're used to it as the love of money is the root of all evil. Colloquially, this gets really butchered. And people say, well, you know, money's the root of all evil. No, it's not. <laughs> money is the means of exchange. It keeps things going around. Money is amoral. It's not evil. Right? Love of money. Love of money. Well, it's the root of all kinds of evil. All kinds of evil. Okay? So, if we keep our lives free from the love of money, then we are axiomatically avoiding what? All kinds of evil, all kinds of trouble we can avoid. Now there are there there are any number of um, simple things that occur that you know we might not think of ourselves as greedy or or you know lovers of money, and yet there are all kinds of things that flash around us that promise us quick riches. You know, go to the Seven Eleven, get your soda and a little lotto ticket. It's all right. Well, it's just a game, right? What's the promise? I get much for little. I'm going to spend my little to get this whole big thing. And there are any number of permutations of that dangling piece of silver that tugs at the avariciousness of our heart. And you can avoid all kinds of evil by just being content with what you got. Not looking for and quick keep, And keep your dollar. Keep your dollar. <laughs> Disproportionately, by the way, lottery schemes take money from the poor. Amen. <clears throat> Disproportionately. It's, uh, yeah, I'll go on a little political rant. It, I was extremely upset when the, when the state of, when the Commonwealth of Virginia authorized through its legislature the Virginia Lottery, which was intended to fund its school system. That's what it was rallied for. And I thought, you know, you guys have a monopoly on liquor. Good for you. You're selling it anyway, but at least the state has the monopoly. Um, now you're going to authorize gambling. Right. And, and so now the state has not only legalized gambling, but has legalized marijuana. And, and you know, all, all you can hear is the advertisement to enticement to the love of money and in sobriety. You know, go to your cannabis hut and, um, you know, bet on next week's football game. It's a shame. All right, rant done. Okay. <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> so, being content. Being content. I, I'm going to read this and then I'm gonna, I'll give a caveat and then I'll just do what I just said don't do. Okay? 
So, the word translated content, be content, is archeo. It's not an arcane word. <laughs> it has a little wordplay right there, right? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> it's archeo. It's a primary verb. It's akin to the Greek word aido through the idea of raising a barrier properly to ward off, to avail. What is sufficient wards off lack, need, insufficiency, greed, avarice, vice. See how this works? Now, an, uh, a, teacher years, a teacher of mine years and years and years ago used this uh, example and it impacted me and I've used it more than once. And if you've heard it, well then, there you go. Um, words by nature of language developing, have history. And your best bet in interpreting Scripture is to take the word for what it means on its face when it's used. Okay? The, the, the clear meaning is, generally speaking, that, that weighs more in the scale than anything else. That being said, um, God is the developer of language, and so what he drags with these words that he decided to use in Scripture can say a lot. Just so long as you don't lose the prime, which is contentment, then um, you could take the added nuances and let it enrich the word. Just don't bury the word and change it into something else. Here's my example. Anyone ever seen a presidential inauguration? Yes. Okay. So what if as a preacher I went on a rant about the sorcery of Washington, D.C., because every single one of our presidents has been inaugurated. A word that comes from cutting a chicken and taking its liver out and augering the future. So we all know that happened with all of our presidents because they were all inaugurated. Oh, I thought you were going to go into detail about no, how not, D.C. is made no, up of them. Plain meaning of the text, baby. Plain oh, meaning of the text. Yeah, things are about to get interesting. yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, you see, what I did there is just abuse reality, right? Okay? So, don't do that when you're studying Scripture, but do be open to how God has invested these words. And when I ran into this word, I thought, wow, what treasure he drug into contentment. The word translated contentment, in essence, means to raise a barrier. To raise a barrier. It comes from this other root word, airo. Now watch what this root word "iro" means. It means to lift up. By implication, to take up or away. By a Hebraism, to expiate sin. <laughs> that your sin is taken away should make you content. Amen. That your sin is taken away raises a barrier about further sin coming in. We're, we're, we're going to... We're going to heaven, not hell, where we Amen. where we were headed before we accepted Jesus. Amen. So I just I was very blessed because that little word had a little treasure trove in it, right? So we're talking about being content, and in that word, content is this barrier raised against evil, and a correlation to our sins being forgiven. Excuse me. All right, Luke chapter three. John the Baptist preaching. I know you never thought of John the Baptist as being the great contentment preacher, but he had a good one. Luke 3, verse 7. <clears throat> He's having a revival meeting. <laughs> That's how we do it, you know? We throw up the tent... We do the advertisement, we have the music group, everybody comes in, lead speaker comes out, so glad you could be here tonight, we want to bless you, <laughs> want to welcome you, come in the tent, God's here, come on in. Oh, That's how John the Baptist ran his big, big meetings, right? To the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers! <laughs> <laughs> you snakes in the grass! Whitewashed sepulchers. Who warned you to flee from the fire that's coming? 
You gotta love it, right? <laughs> uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. He just, he goes right on in and says, don't, hey, don't, What are you walking in here for? Don't even think to come in with any kind of pride. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? It's one of the, the other thing I love about the King James translation is that there's artistry in the English used. So here in the ESV, we're going to read about crowds and tax collectors. In the King James, you read about uh, people and publicans and then, well, soldiers. Or as I like to say, police. So the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to. So these people in repentance are asking him, What are these fruits you're talking about of repentance? I don't want to be cut down. I don't want to throw in the fire. So then the soldiers asked him, Well, what shall and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Be content with your wages. All of these not only are an expression of fruits meet for repentance, but they're practical uh, keys to contentment that Paul, that Paul, that John the Baptist expounded on. Uh, and it's real, real, real simple. Uh, share from your abundance with those in need. You have two coats, give one of the coats to someone who doesn't have any. You got food, feed someone who has no food. So, if, if you're prone to hoarding, or even if you're prone to not being thankful, there's someone who has less than you do, and you have more something than, the, than you need. The very act of giving uh, makes you aware of the fact that you can be content with what you have. Makes you grateful for what you have. Makes you share your wealth. Amen? To the tax collectors, he said, collect only what is authorized. Collect only what is authorized. Okay? So, um, this can translate to the cashier or the butcher. The butcher with the golden thumb, you know, well, there's two pounds of me. Um, the cashier who gives wrong change. Right? The gas station that doubles their price because they know a crunch is coming. Oh, wait a minute, but that's free market, right? I can just charge what I want. Sure you can. Doesn't mean that in charging what you want is moral. Right? And then to the soldiers, it says, don't, exhort, don't extort through violence or false testimony. And further, he adds, be content with your wages. Be content with your wages? That's a big one. That's a huge one. And I'll just speak to American culture on this. You don't like what you're getting paid? you got two choices. Ask for a raise, get another job. The choice most people take, which is complain about what they're being paid, doesn't get you anymore. Does is not Christ likeness. Might get you. It's self defeating. <laughs> yeah. You know, makes you makes you a bad employee. Uh, rots the pot. Does all kinds of things. And, and I have like other illustrations of this, but contentment is subjective. Contentment is subjective. I can be content. Sufficiency is objective. Oh, my meal costs ten dollars and I have five. That's subjective. You follow me? So contentment is subjective. Sufficiency is objective. If I can't afford a $10 meal and I have $5 and I want to be content, what do I do? Buy half a meal. Buy half a meal. Right? So contentment is subjective. Sufficiency is objective. We can need much, have little, and be content. From our perspective, the little we have can be factually insufficient. 
This is why the Christian's contentment isn't complacent to the circumstances. This is not some Buddhist resignation to the moves of the universe where we have lack and we say everything's okay. The Christian contentment isn't complacency or passivity. It's not passive submission to the status quo, but faith empowered through the promise that He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now one way I wrote this thought was, wealth without Christ is poverty. Weakness and insufficiency with Christ can face the world and be victorious. Which is all true, but not as pithy as how I wrote it later. John 6, verse 5. <coughs> Lifting up his eyes, this is Jesus then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are, we, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So, I just love it. You know? <laughs> he knows this. Is, it's not one of these where like Jesus shows up, he sees all these people, and it's like, should have thought about the banquet. <laughs> I mean, he knew exactly what he was going to do. But that's no fun. I mean, I want to involve my friends. Hey, we're going to get the money. What's the lesson? It ain't about money. That's the lesson. Not even about the bakery. Where are we going to go buy it? There's no bakery and there's no money. Right? Philip says, uh, Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves, and two fish. But what are they among so many? I can see Peter slapping him on the side, you know. I told you not to talk about that. <laughs> what are you thinking? Five loaves, two fishes? Why are you even bothering him? <laughs> and he's just kind of like stepping his toe out there, right? Well, there's a little bit here, but you know, we all know that's nothing. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Uh, from other Gospels we understand that Jesus had them organized in companies. It wasn't just this mass bedlam. He squared them up. There was in groups of 50, I believe. Um, and Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, Indeed, the prophet who is to come into the world. So, this is the feeding of the five thousand. A lesson that the disciples entirely missed, even though they started off with no money and no bread, went up to a lunch from a kid, and then collected 12 baskets full of bread. Anyhow, here's the point. Little with Christ is all. All without Christ is nothing. Little with Christ is all. Yeah, you can gain the whole Matter world fact, and lose your soul. And... What does it profit you? Yeah. Nothing. Right? All without Christ is nothing. Christ Actually, the most pithy saying here is, Christ is all. Christ is all. Amen? Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Remember, contentment is subjective. Contentment is subjective. And true contentment is possible because God is always with us. It's not about the things. It's about the one. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Do you know there's a danger in facing plenty? 
We get concerned about facing the hunger. But Paul learned that there's equal measures of danger and suffering want and in suffering plenty and either of them making you forget Jesus. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Christ is all. I've been sitting on something, but can I jump in? Sure. So, I th this is this is good. So I thank you for it. It's an important message, I think. Um, it's not, you know, I think sometimes when we hear talk about contentment, we think it's really about just sort of being spiritual and being devoted to Jesus and being happy with what I have and it's sort of the, the how I live my life. But I, I would suggest it goes a whole lot deeper than that, or I should say a whole lot more to the center of the target, which is our salvation. And what I mean is that... Uh, you know, when the feeding of the 5,000, you know, it was like the next day or whatever, that they came looking for him. And, and he said, you are seeking me because I gave you bread, bread. but you don't understand. It's not about the bread. Mm -hmm. And so he, he kind, of, kind of chastised them because they missed the point. It wasn't about the bread. And likewise, uh, and, and I say this because this is where I've been the last few days, really wrestling with something that's core to my unbelief. When, when, uh, when Jesus came and the Jews were looking for a Messiah, it was the same problem. They were, in essence, looking for the bread. In fact, they even said, well, God gave us manna from heaven, said, Master, show us a sign. Mm -hmm. Because they understood that Messiah was going to come and make everything right. He was going to set it all straight. He was going to bring down the mountains and raise the valleys. He was going to establish Israel as God's kingdom in the world. So Jesus did not expect meet their expectations. And, and, and that, uh, you know, they, they said, well, when Messiah comes, we won't know where he comes from. It was a problem that Jesus was from Nazareth because they knew where he came from. But that wasn't what he meant. He said, where I come from, where I go, you cannot go. Right? Mm -hmm. Because he was from his father and he returned to his father. But here's the thing. It goes back to contentment. Well, if you're going to seek the bread, if you're going to look for Messiah to solve the problems of this world, you're never going to be content in who he is and what he came to do. Because he didn't come to do all that. Now, we are fortunate that he, he does provide for us. I have never seen the righteous begging bread. Praise God. But nevertheless... Um, you know, history is full of examples where people suffered terribly, even in Christian, so-called Christian nations. But here's, I guess, the thing for, for me, which is very personal, which is my big struggle as a believer has been, God, you have the power to fix everything. You say you're good, but how can you say you're good if you have the power to fix everything and you don't? Are you not complicit with the evils of the world? Are you not supporting the fallenness of this world? Free will. Well, I've really struggled with this because, you know, I'm all about accountability. And I'm like, now I'm to the point where I'm feeling compelled to hold God accountable. And I know I'm in dangerous territory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get spanked really hard by the time I get done with this. But, and I have been spanked hard over this. But... But here's the thing, I think that it, it, it has taken me a good six months of working through this stuff and understanding. The reality is, the world was fallen and dead. End of story. Mm -hmm. And Jesus did not come to transform the earth as we understand it into the kingdom of heaven. Now wait a minute, he says, when we pray, I know I'm off time here, when we pray, we're supposed to pray your will be done in, on earth as in heaven. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between the kingdom of heaven, which is up there, and the kingdom of God, which is us, the family of God, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, right? So your, which kingdom did he mean in Matthew? Did he mean the kingdom of God or did he mean the kingdom of heaven? Because sure, don't see kingdom of heaven on earth. We see 
murder and death and adultery and fornication and rape and killing and blah, 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 and this is not the kingdom of heaven. So that's obviously not what he meant because we've been praying that for 2,000 years. So what he meant was the kingdom of God. My point is for my contentment. If I'm going to be content, I have to accept that I am not going to have heaven on earth. It's not going to happen because that's not what he came to do. He came not to be Messiah, I'm going to fix everything. He came to be, I'm going to go into the world, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to take out those who are mine. That's what he said. So when you said earlier, you said about contentment, um, you made a really good statement, which was, um, oh, we ought to be happy that we're saved. And that sounds extreme, I think, to some of us in this generation where we are, very, we are so blessed. We just don't even comprehend how fortunate we are that we live in this time period like no other time period in history. And we don't understand. We take so much. I take so much for granted. Well, but I, he, he try, he's bringing me down a notch to where you need to be happy that you're saved because most of the world is not. Mm -hmm. So while you're whining away about your first world problems and your little minor health issues, you forget about the hundreds of thousands, millions, who died from plagues over the last 2,000 years and lived in squalor and hunger and all of this mess, and people still do. Yep. Okay, I could go on. Yeah, thank no, you. For but that. that's, that's, that's the thing, is, is that, that in Christ, it's not whether you're full... Or whether you're hungry, it's whether you are in Christ. That's that's the key. You can you can face any life challenge when you have the understanding and faith that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things. As he said, as he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. To that point, and this is the last I'll say, is the reason that I think that's important is because as we look forward to the days ahead that are going to be probably hard, we need to keep in mind so that we're not disappointed with God. Because when things do get hard, and if we do suffer, we need to remember that what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that, that speaks back to, you know, I've learned the secret of facing plenty. It, it, it's, it's a real... I, Hey, it, it, you have some yeah, that's, that's a that's a hard one because I'm telling you yeah. that in in my own life and in my life of ministry, um, the challenge of plenty going away has invariably been a challenge of faith to the person who feels lessened. You know, someone's trucking along and they get a demotion at work, they lose their job, they lose their health. They go through a minor Job experience, and all of a sudden, it's God on trial. All of a sudden, it's, well, I thought, you know, this was supposed to be Shangri-La, because I'm a Christian, and why is this happening, and why is, why is God, uh, you know, all of a sudden it becomes apparent that I am the center of my own universe, I just didn't realize it, you know, why is God doing this to me, why did this happen to me, why is the enemy after me, you know? Um, why are we kind of disappointed in God? when he does nothing but hold true what he promises. So you can't become disappointed in him because if anything, like when things do go wrong mm -hmm. or things happen, that's not because of him. That's, that's right. That is, it's a fallen world, first off, because and, of Adam and, and we have an enemy. And what we can do, what brings hope to the fallen world is the fact that he gives us this promise of eternal life. Yeah. And that is the promise that he's get, given us. So that's the promise that to, we hold fast to. To Abel's point is we need to have a real, accurate scale of values. Yeah. And the, and the first and foremost scale of value is, is that we have eternal life. And, and so... perspective. Yeah, that that after that everything else is cream on top. Yeah. You know, suffering with cancer, not going to hell, winner. 
<laughs> you know? Well, exactly. We're here, we're here to bring glory to God, Amen. right? It's not about us. It's not about, oh, poor sinner me. It's my sin that gets me in trouble. Well, okay, so that's, okay, yeah, that's true. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to go to God and ask for forgiveness and accept that Jesus died specifically for that sin that you're beating yourself up about? Or you're going to do the whole moan victim mentality aspect of that? It's like, what... What is your perspective on life? What are you holding value to? This was part of Paul's life lesson um, in, uh, in the jam that he was in. And he constrained the Lord. In other words, he asked the Lord three times about his situation and said, change it. I don't like the situation. I don't like the fact that wherever I go, I get beat up. <laughs> Can you just stop it, please? And Christ's answer wasn't, well, no, you're not going to get beat up anymore. Matter of fact, his answer was, yeah, you're going to lose your life. But his true answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not changing your circumstance. I'm changing your perspective. I'm changing your ability to cope. I'm changing your empowerment through faith in me. My grace is sufficient. And ever-present, by the way. Amen. It's funny to think about Paul. Can you imagine Paul the Apostle going off the rails and like, you know, God, <laughs> enough. You know, I've been doing all this for you, and you just hit with rocks, and these guys are treating me like garbage, and I'm doing your work, and what's the deal? I mean, we don't I even quit. imagine. We don't even imagine that. But what was what was so special about Paul? There, here's the thing. You said it a minute ago. There's a difference between a self-centered faith and a God-centered faith. Amen. A self-centered faith is prone to all kinds of failure. And when it is tested, it will... It falls. It comes it's same. That's the Pharisee. That's, that ties into being pharisaical. Of mm -hmm. like, oh, look at me for I'm a perfect Christian or I'm doing the check marks in life. Yes. If things go wrong, it's not God's fault, it's mine. Or whatever. Or somebody... It's not God's fault anyway. Well, it's the it fault. Might, I think you said the it fault. Might be, will, right? It might be it's Hannah's fault. I mean, fault, that but was <laughs> straight out when God's like, don't do the thing, and you did the thing. Right. Like that, it's, it's, and that is what holds true to who he is as our Lord, is he's like, this is, this is truth. I hold to my promise, and I told you, you would die if you eat that fruit. This is the fallen world. And so you can't get mad when things go wrong because it's spelled out in Genesis. So there. Yeah. Yeah. I told her she was, she was, um, what did I tell her? She was a good priest. She was, yeah, snarky today. It's good. <laughs> I thought she was snarky were you just, every day. Were you just giving a witness with a hand or did you have something to say? Well, I was just going to, I guess, with why was Jesus here on the earth, too. It was to, be, to start the church. Huh? He was duplicating himself. He was the self You know, yeah. so it wasn't just that we, I, it was, it wasn't what the, Religious folks expected. Nope. I mean, the group, the ragtag group, he group who he wound up with were comparable to I, David's guys in the cave. You know. I think many times he's not he's not what what we expected either. <laughs> well, that, that's where I like to put my focus is to enlarge. Yeah. That. Yeah. Because absolutely, it did pray, "My kingdom come." Amen. I will be done in absolutely. here as it is in heaven. Who's going to reinforce that and own it? Yeah. It better be the church. It's only going to be the church. Yeah. We're you know, authorized. So we have great purpose here. And it may be intimidating. We may stand up, especially if we're alone and fall down, or we think we're alone. There you go. But, we we but we're loaded. Uh -huh. Think of the gifts God has given us to work yes. with. Amen. And we're here. Well, it's, it's like what you said earlier in the beginning is the the whole um, what is it? The is walking with His presence and being manifested when we're about to call this business. Right. That's you know. Yeah. That's and that's the technically purpose. the only thing we're supposed to be persecuted for. That's, that's, we're that's why yeah. preaching the gospel and doing the work of the kingdom. Yeah, we're doing good. That's why fellowship of, of believers is so important. You can't walk, you can't walk this alone yeah. very well. At least no, we're not meant to be. Yeah, yeah. Right. And you know, and and you know, when when we have a a, a group of, of of believers that walk together, and somebody has a problem, well, 
you know, we we try to help out. Other people try to help me, or whatever. Or, mm -hmm. or, and 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 you don't feel alone. You feel, you know, I, I mean, you know, we're not alone. We got Christ with us, but I can't see Christ. Right. He, he, <laughs> I can only see him through said, through you guys. He gives us tangible evidence. Amen. Second Timothy chapter six, verse six. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. He had just talked about those who suppose that gain is godliness. In other words, that that profit, prosperity in its own right, was a sign of someone being godly. It's not. It's not. But he reverses it and he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is the Greek word Eusebia. And I've always uh, been blessed with W. Bonger's definition of this word in his lexicon. He defines Eusebia as a true, vital, spiritual relationship with God. It's not comportment, it's relationship. Okay? It's not, it's not and, he, and he says it's directly opposite to the Greek word threskia which is translated religion, which are the outward forms, the liturgy of worship. You know, the trappings. That godliness, a, a relationship, a true, spiritual, vital relationship with God, in the attitude of being content, I will posit to you that I believe contentment is impossible without gratitude. We will wait for the That's, online church to join. I, I, you know, I, I used to think about the people that go into the great cathedrals and they see their stained glass windows and this and that. And, and you know, this is not godliness to me. I mean, this is not a sign of godliness to me. Right. I don't know where, why they think it is, but, you know. It was a of reverence, though, for the Lord that a lot of those people gave their talents. To that. And a lot of people go to some places like that and reminisce about the grand, what they perceive to be the glory of God and grandeur and all yes. that stuff. Part of the idea with the cathedrals was they were trying to represent the grandeur of heaven. They thought it was. Right. Yeah, that was kind of the goal. Yeah. So the, the best way to appreciate that is to just simply appreciate that and try to understand where they're coming from. Yeah, I, you know, I had a Catholic... Uh, a background for for ten or fifteen years, and and uh, and so I'm I'm kind of kind of against that stuff really strongly. <laughs> There's a that that said as a side note, I'm I'm uh, I'm learning that um, our neurological wiring is is built for wonder. So whenever something ordinary is, is stretched for us in an extraordinary way, um, it releases endorphins in our system that makes us go, and it, and it, and it does something for us um, psychologically, emotionally, physically. Um, and literature's expression of that would be like the ordinary man who becomes a hero He's like a regular guy, but then more, and we go, oh, courage, right? Um, architecture's, <coughs> architecture's expression of that is the vaulted ceiling, where you step into a building, but then it's more of a building. Yeah. And, and so, to one, to one person, like, like I right, think... Again. I think the crucifix is really. Oh, I think the crucifix is really yeah, special, but I don't worship the crucifix. Yeah. No, it's not. Oh, my mic's on. Yeah. Right. Okay, you all just missed something really, really great, but we're not going to review it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Got them on the edge of their seats tonight. <laughs> we're talking about wonder and grandeur and a real, vital, true relationship with God versus religion which is the outward trapping of uh, that. So, <clears throat> so the title of this message was Contentment's Great Gain. Well, yeah. there's great gain in godliness with contentment. And what I was saying is, is that, that contentment is impossible without gratitude. Yeah. Contentment's impossible without thanksgiving. 
All those practical things that John the Baptist talked about. Hey, if you've got two coats, give one away. If you've got food, feed the hungry. If you're a person in authority to receive money, don't take more than you're due. If, if you are someone who is uh, invested with authority, uh, like a soldier, or in that context, what, what triggers that context, first of all, they are a peacekeeping force. You know, the, they, it, it's a police presence, right? So the soldiers are not to exhort, extort through violence or false testimony. That do violence is diaseo in Greek, and it means to shake thoroughly, to intimidate. So it, our idiom for it is a shakedown. Yeah. Right? You've heard that? You know, when, when, uh, when corrupt cops do a shakedown, yeah. you know, they'll go to the, and, and, and take money that's not supposed to be theirs. So it, it's to exercise force in order to extort money. False testimony and shakedown speak to the police presence of the soldiers. Law enforcement's endowed with a tremendous responsibility and a monopoly of violence. The hedge the greatest Old Testament prophet offers against police corruption is contentment with their pay. I think that's powerful. It's not, it's not, um, a but the base root is contentment with your pay. Anyhow, so, Great gain in godliness with contentment. Understanding that Christ is all. And my relationship with Christ is all. And that I can be content in whatever state or circumstance I find myself. Not passively, but passionately in love with Christ. Like I said, not in some Hindu or Buddhist checkout of, Oh, this is just the way the universe is. I'll sit down and take it. It's not about that. It's about understanding in faith that Christ is with me. I, I am not suffering alone. Because you know what? When I suffer, He suffers. His empathy, didn't, His empathy didn't fade at the resurrection. It amplified. Your intercessor feels what you feel. Yeah. Plus There's, it's kind of like saying, it wasn't enough. That's what gets me. It gets you. Like telling, like telling Jesus what he did wasn't enough. Yeah. I would never they, do that. Thanks for dragging me out of hell by your own blood, but can I have some more coke, please? Um, you know, <laughs> can, I, can, I, can you supersize that for me? Right? <laughs> that's funny because it's true. I mean, it, it is. We it's don't just realize. So well, so that's what's really interesting about this conversation is it all roads, true spiritual roads, will lead back to a conversation about Jesus, which. Everybody has been going back to that direction, and, and, and I think that sometimes we just, we kind of let Jesus sit in the room while we talk about the Word of God, and, and, um, and um, kind of forget the fact that, that's, that we're talking about Him, and, and I know for... He is the Word. He is I, I, I know, and for me, though, I, I can look back at my last t 10 years and say, you know, really, how much Jesus was really in my walk? And that's a challenging and question. And there's always more. Yeah. And there's, and there's always the question of how much my walk was in Jesus. <laughs> well, that's, yes. Yeah. Right. Therein lies the rub. Yeah. Where is, where is our focus? And I think as, as we go through trying times and these things get peeled back, if we don't have him, when it's all peeled back, the banana's going to be empty. Yeah. I mean, Trust if you're not on the rock, you fall when the storm comes. Period. I know one thing. The, the Lord looks at your heart. And he he wants your, he wants our hearts and he wants our hearts to be uh, for him and with him and and on him and he looks at our heart and that's what pleases him when our heart is right before him. Amen. For we brought nothing into the world. That's for sure. And we cannot take anything out of the world. And, and Elizabeth is bringing somebody into the world with nothing. <laughs> Y'all heard the story about the guy who's. He was convinced he could take it with him. So, like, instead of instead of doing a last will and testament, taking care of a kid, he took, he took all his net worth and he converted it to gold bricks and he put it in a duffel bag and he was buried with it. Oh, I thought those were the pharaohs. No, 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 no. This guy. And so he was convinced. Anyhow, <coughs> next thing he knows, he's right there up at the gates of heaven talking to Peter. He's got a duffel bag and he's like, I can't believe it. And he opens it up and there are the bars of gold. Oh. And Peter says, hey, what's, what's going on there? He goes, well, I, you know, all my friends said I couldn't bring it with me. 
He said, well, well, what do you got there? And he, so he opens it up. He says, see, it's all there. And Peter looks at it and he goes, what are you bringing paving bricks up here for? <laughs> <laughs> we brought happy. nothing in the world. We brought nothing in the world. We're not taking anything out. So if we have food and clothing, see, God recognizes basic needs. God expects us to meet basic needs. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me water. We have food and clothing. With these, we will be content. There is a baseline to contentment, an expectation of God taking care of your base needs. He expects us to forgive those that wrong us, too. Amen. Amen. But Christ is all. Contentment's great gain. So I'm going to go all the way back to that second slide that was the entire message. Contentment's great gain is a relationship with Christ that anchors our faith and frees us from intimidation so that we can boldly testify of His grace. Mm -hmm. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. From a female point of view, yeah. I'm happy to be in relationship with a man who died for me. Amen. Amen. From a male point of view, me too. <laughs> That's what every girl wants. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, what every person wants deep in their heart, they want to be accepted. Yeah. And Christ accepted us. Made us accepted. Amen. I figured my typo.